Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning, everybody. Let's get our Bibles out and go to John chapter 1. We're looking at the gospel according to John, the beloved disciple. And the gospel itself opens with these words. We looked at them last time. In the beginning was the Word. That's such a rich expression of who Jesus really was, the Word. When you think about it, a word is the way we express an idea or a thought. And then the moment that you express it through a word, you have revealed your mind. And that's really what was going on with Jesus. And this goes back to the creation story itself. Of course, in saying, in the beginning was the word, that's an allusion to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that opens with that same line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there's an interesting little feature in the Hebrew construction of that. And I don't want to get too detailed with this because I'm certainly not a Hebrew scholar. Somebody said one time, I know, I know a little Hebrew, he runs a deli. That's about all the Hebrew I know. But, but uh, there's a little word in that original line that's not translated. It's not translated in any Bible. And it's really just two letters, Aleph and Beth, the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph and Beth. But it's a very important word to the Jewish mind because it it encapsulates the idea of this whole idea, the concept of the word. It says, in the beginning, and then there's the Aleph Beth, an untranslatable word, God created the heavens and the earth. And that word, the best they can come up with is, it's a word that uh, can be translated or carries with it the idea of the alphabet. And the idea is that in the beginning, God created the alphabet, which is God created the means by which we can articulate and express ideas. So God created the heavens and the earth through the spoken word, and that's how it was done. God spoke, and this happened. God spoke, and that happened. And now we come back around to John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so he's preexistent. He's, he's uh, co-equal, part of the Trinity. And then it says, and, and all things that came into being came into being by him. So he was co-creator. And so there is this beautiful double entendre of of the idea that Jesus, the Word of God, the expression of God, was also co-creator in the same way that God created the universe. And so you have this magnificent picture of Christ and the majesty of Christ, the sovereignty of God. And and we talked about that last time because we have this tendency to minimize Jesus. We want to shrink Jesus in our minds down to this manageable unit. Uh, There was a thing that came out about 15 years ago called the buddy Jesus. And uh, the idea was Jesus is my buddy. And, 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 and from this concept, when I can shrink Jesus down, then he becomes something that is useful to me. And so uh, he becomes my servant. He's responsible for my happiness. He's responsible for taking care of me. And he becomes like a good luck charm, you know, like a little troll doll. You just carry him in your pocket, pull him out, rub his head, and Jesus will do whatever you want him to do. And that's the idea that people have with Jesus. And John's not going to let us get away with that. He says, no, 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 no. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He created everything. And then we come back around to John 1, verse 14. 
You see, if he is majestic, then we've got to understand that he's what matters and not us. And we bow the knee to him and we do what he says. But, you know, all of that is very philosophical and theological. And I don't know, it's hard to wrap your head around it. and It's hard to really warm up to it. But then we come to John 1.14. And it turns from theology to biology. And the word, that same word, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's probably the most significant statement in the entire Bible. The word became flesh. The creature became part of the creation. And Jesus came for two reasons. Obviously, he came to redeem the world from sin, and he did that on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God. He fully atoned for sin. Nothing you ever did is going to cause God to, to, over, to, to reject you if you come to him by simple faith. He'll, he'll cover your sins by grace. That was the redemptive part of Jesus. But the other aspect of that is, and, and primarily, he came also to reveal him, to reveal the Father to us. And so in coming to us, Jesus reveals the Father. Notice what he says. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so through his words and actions and his reactions, Jesus revealed to all of us the nature of God. In fact, he would later say in John 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, uh, you want to know what God looks like? Then look at me. Because Jesus was the embodiment of the Father. He was the visible manifestation of the Father. And so in that sense, Jesus himself bore witness to the Father. The Word, the, who God is in every aspect of God, in him the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. And the Word became flesh and he became visible for us. And aren't you glad he did? Aren't you glad that it's not just about concepts and philosophy and, and uh, theology and ideology and all that? It's because sometimes we need personality and we need warmth of the prayer. It reminds me of that story that a little girl was in a thunderstorm and uh, she starts running into the mom and dad's bedroom in the middle of the night. I'm scared. And daddy's like, well, baby, don't you know that Jesus is with you wherever you are and he's with you in your room and you can go back and sleep and know that Jesus is with you. And she said, yeah, I know all that, but right now I just need somebody with skin on. I need somebody with skin on. And so God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in that sense, Jesus bore witness to the Father. And I want to park on that whole concept because I think that's the central theme of what goes on in, in John chapter 1, verse 6 and following. It becomes about the witness. We're going to see the witness of John. But Jesus himself was the witness of the Father. And in the same way, John then becomes the witness of Jesus. And John bore witness of him. I mean, go back to verse 6, John 1, verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this isn't the author of the book. This, that's the Apostle John. This is John the Baptist. Um, and so John comes, became a man uh, sent from God, whose name was John, uh, verse 7. He came as, and here's the word, a witness to testify. And both of those words are the same word. Uh, both of those words are the word martyr, martyrus. And originally that word had to do with someone who testifies in a court of law to something that they have personally witnessed. That's a, that's a martyr. 
It came to mean something else because as those men and women full of faith and grace went out into the world and became witnesses for Jesus, they experienced persecution. And from that persecution, many of them were killed for their faith. And so the idea of martyr became something that happens to someone as a consequence of their belief system, right? They were martyred for their faith. But the word martyr really means to witness or testify. And it says there that John did both. And he came to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And so the real light came into the world, but sadly, watch what happens. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. I love that, you know, because, I don't know, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. So in a very real sense... He was already here before he came, right? I mean, we know that because he's omnipresent and he's already present. So in coming to the world, he was already here. But there's another aspect of that in that the world was his created work. And so he was in that as well. The world becomes the expression or the witness to the reality of God. It's like an artist is in his work and the work is in the artist, right? And, and when you look at this universe and you look at the creative order, um, his brushstrokes are all over it. His fingerprints are all over this thing. And so he was already here, you know, he was already visible. And, and I love that idea of the creative essence of God. Um, and, and because of that, and because it becomes another witness to the reality of God, because of the creation. Everyone is without excuse. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. He says, for ever since the world was created, now look at this, people have seen the earth and the sky through everything God made, and they can clearly see his indivisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine, his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. And, and, and so the world itself becomes a witness of Christ. But, but read that last phrase, John 1, verse 10. The world did not know him. And this to me is the tragedy of the incarnation. The world that he made did not recognize him. And even worse, the people that he chose rejected him. To me, that's the saddest story in the Bible, that he created this world that gives a witness to him, and then he set apart this unique group of people called the Jews who would be the testimony to him, and yet one didn't recognize him and the other rejected him. Look at uh, the rest of that. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. Why did they reject him? Well, the Jews had a pride hang up, right? Now, they were Abraham's offspring. They were the chosen. They were the that's what we sometimes call the Baptist, the frozen chosen, you know. They didn't need a savior because they were already the elect of God, the chosen. Now, the Greeks and Romans had an intellectual hang-up. Uh, it was foolishness to them. They were just too smart for all this stuff. But the real reason that people rejected Jesus is because we've got a sin hang-up. And that's really the core of our problem. I was driving along the other day listening to uh, the songs off of my, my phone. We used to call it my iPod off my phone. I'm still one of those old school guys. I don't do Spotify and all that. So I want to own my music, right? So I've been buying songs for, you know, a hundred years. And I've got all these songs and my kids would, in the old days, would get on my account before Spotify and they would buy songs. So half the time I'm listening to songs I've never even heard before that are on my phone. And I'm driving along and a U2 song comes up and the title of the song 
Maybe you guys have heard this song. It's called Raised by Wolves. Have you ever heard that song by U2? Is it U2 or U2? I don't know. But the, the title intrigued me, Raised by Wolves. Now, I, I, so I start looking at it, and I, I get the background of it, because it's really a kind of a morose song about, you know, death and dying and destruction. And I, I realized that it's a story that Bono wrote in relationship to an actual event that happened in 1974, there was this, most of you are too young to know, there was this tension in Ireland over independence, and you had the IRA with terrorist bombings in places like Belfast, but then you had the British side of it that were doing terrorist bombings in places like Dublin. And, and there were three car bombs that went off in Dublin, 1974. Bono said that he was spared because he would have normally been at this record store at the time. And for some reason, he was doing something with his father and he wasn't there that day. And so he was spared the carnage. But he had a very good friend that was there and witnessed the whole thing. 33 people died. 300 people were injured in the explosions that, that occurred. And he said it marked his friend for the rest of his life. And from that, he writes this song called Raised by Wolves. And the, the chorus goes like this, raised by wolves, stronger than fear, raised by wolves, we were made to be nearby. And throughout the song, just kind of in the background, it's kind of a, you know, a haunting, you know how you two can do their deal, kind of a haunting thing in the background. He just keeps saying, I don't believe anymore. I don't believe anymore. I don't believe anymore. There's this cynicism that's born from the, from the senseless violence that comes out of all of that. And, and I became intrigued in that whole idea as I'm sitting here thinking, raised by wolves, raised. And maybe part of it's because that's what my mom, Sarah, died, used to always say. Were you guys, were y'all raised by wolves? You know, me and my brothers. Are y'all raised by wolves? You live in a barn? You trying to air condition the whole neighborhood? You know, shut the door. Raised by wolves. And, and there's, I don't know. I, I don't. I wasn't raised by wolves, but there was a wolf in me, and there's a wolf in all of us. There's a there's a darkness in us, and I think this gets at the reason why people rejected Jesus. There's there's this animal inside this this darkness that Mark Twain said it this way. He said everybody's a moon and has a dark side, which he never shows to anybody. And I think that's why we reject the real light because we just we love our darkness. You don't want to give up that darkness. There, you, you hate what it's doing to you, but there's something attractive to it that you want to hold on to. But watch what happens. Verse 12, but as many as received him, and this is the beautiful part of grace. It's not earned, it's not achieved, it's received. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that beautiful? No matter what they've done, no matter what you've done. When you receive Christ, you become a child of God, Right? Even to those who believe in his name. That's what grace is all about. Grace is the unmerited favor of God poured out by virtue of the cross. And when we believe by faith, our sins are forgiven, our past is forgotten, and our eternity is secured, right? It says, verse 13, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh. So it's not something that you can do nor of the will of man, but of God. So whoever believes in Jesus finds life and light. He talks about that. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And that's what's going on in our lives. The moment you receive Christ by faith, the life of Christ comes into you and you are born again into a new life, right? And that life brings with it a light 
And that light begins to radiate throughout your life and God begins to to grow that light in you so that you begin to reflect the nature of Jesus Christ. And so whoever believes in Jesus receives the life and the light and, and, and through the process of the rest of your life, God is growing that light in you so that you become more and more a visible testament of Jesus Christ. And so you begin to develop a life story, and God develops a life story in you. And he does this through a variety of things. Sometimes it's through the blessings and the joys and the happiness and and the great experiences on the mountaintop. But sometimes it's in the valley, too, and it's going through hard things and dark things and hurtful things. And through all of that, you gain insight into the nature of God and who he is and what he's doing. And as you build that life story, your story becomes his story. And we have a word for that. You know what we call it? your witness. That's what John was doing. John was a witness to Jesus. Look at verse 15. John testified. Again, there's that word martyr. John testified about him and cried out saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, obviously you and I aren't John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a one-off thing. John the Baptist was a unique person who was given a unique responsibility to prepare the way for Jesus. He did that by calling people to repentance. He did that by witnessing to the veracity of Christ. And so John was unique. And, you know, sometimes we're bad about taking something that was unique in the scripture and trying to normalize it. There was only one burning bush. There was only one time when God spoke through a donkey. Well, there's a lot of, maybe there's more than one time he spoke through a donkey. I don't know. Maybe he's doing that right now. But uh, we look at these things that are one-offs and we want to normalize. So we don't want to do that with John. You're not John the Baptist. You're not going to be John the Baptist. So get that out of your head. But there are aspects of the witness that John the Baptist gave that need to be involved in your witness because you are called to be a witness. You have the same calling John the Baptist had in that regard. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they're talking, they're like, is this the time? Is this the time? Because the disciples are always wanting to, they're wanting to get their throne, you know. They're wanting the crown. And so are we going to get the crown? You know, they're in this upper room. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and all that. But, and that word but is the key, it's the most important word in that whole thing. We're going to transition from what you want to what I want you to do. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my what? My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And so we're called to it, and we can learn from John. So how do we do this? Well, first of all, we witness his grace and truth. This is what John did. Look back up at verse 14. We beheld his glory as of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Father is always about grace and truth. If if you don't have grace, you don't have the Father. But if you don't have truth, you don't have the Father. And people need to hear about grace, man, especially in this cancel culture. We live at a time where... If you wrote something on social media when you were 13 years old and now you're running for public office, whatever you wrote could be out there. And they'll cancel you. I'm so grateful that I'm a dinosaur and I grew up before all that stuff because there's no telling what, what idiot Bill would have written when he was 13 years old. And there's no walking anything back. You can't get over it. You did something terrible. You used a word you shouldn't have used. You're canceled everywhere except here. Because Jesus will never cancel you. And no matter what you do, 
He's going to love you and forgive you and offer you grace. And that needs to be the message that comes forth. Full of grace, but also full of truth. Look at this. And I know it's hard because when you're trying to win people, you don't want to say anything that's going to be offensive. And so you're trying to be gracious. And yet, you know, they're saying things that you know are not true. And you don't really want to get into an argument. So how do you bring truth? And it's really the hard part about witnessing, isn't it? Because I've got to tell you the truth about sin. Your sin is killing you. And you may not see it. And you may even love it. But somehow I've got to figure out how to do that. And so I'm praying about it. And I'm thinking, God, give me the words. Help me to understand this. And this isn't, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not saying that you get permission to be the obnoxious Christian who's just sort of hammering everybody with truth every chance you get. And you don't even care about the outcome. I mean, you want to, you want to go at it graciously. And you're, you don't want to force it. You don't want to manipulate it. I always say, remember, we're fishing, not hunting. There's a big difference. You know, when you hunt, you have to stalk your prey. But when you're fishing, you're trying to lure the prey. You know, you're trying to think like a fish. My brother-in-law is a great fisherman. And when I'm out fishing with him, he's thinking like a fish. And he'll even talk to the fish. He'll go, what are you doing? You know, what are you thinking? Why aren't you over there? You know, I, got a, I bought a boat several years ago because I needed a hobby. And I got a boat and I drove out on a lake and I looked around and I said, where's a fish? If I was a fish, where would I be? I have no idea. I can't think like a fish. I, I had that boat for two years. I caught one fish. <laughs> I sold it. Stupid boat. Fish. I can't fish. But if you're... If you're giving a witness and you got to give truth, you want to think like a fisherman, not like a hunter. A hunter's out, you know, to kill something and take, take the prize. You just want to cut the head off and put it on the wall. And that's a lot of people who are saying they're witnesses for Jesus, and that's, that's kind of where they're at. Uh, let me look back up at this. Uh, some aren't going to receive it. They may never receive it. They may not be ready to receive it right now. They may receive it later. But look what he says, verse 12. But as many as received him. In other words, not everybody did. But you have to be careful with that. And you have to realize the outcome's not up to you. Look how Jesus did it. He, we're going to get to this. He meets this woman at the well. She's had like five husbands. The, the guy she's married to is not her husband. Jesus confronts her with that truth, you know. She's like, I'm not married. He said, yeah, I know you're not married. You had five husbands. You're living with a guy. And she's like, you know what she says next? Uh, I perceive you're a prophet. Hey, where should we worship? <laughs> In other words, let's quit talking about husbands. Let's quit talking about my sin. Let's talk about something else. And here's what you have to realize. Jesus let her go. He let her go. Look at Paul in Athens. He doesn't quote the Old Testament one single time. Instead, he quotes one of their, their, their poets, He's very gracious with them, but he brings the truth of the resurrection to bear in the conversation. And when they heard that, most of them left, but a few of them stayed. The outcome isn't up to you. Never try to manufacture what only the Spirit can produce. Fill your life with the story of grace and truth. And then secondly, we need to speak the witness. Verse 15, John testified about him and cried out, saying, it's a spoken truth. I used to say, preach all the time and if necessary, use words. And I get that, that... What I mean by that is I got to live this stuff, right? I got to be authentic. I got to be transparent. I've got to, I've got to, my, my talk has to match my walk. 
But then I had this experience. I was in college and I was a waiter at an all-you-can-eat catfish place called the Crow's Nest. It was one of these kind of home-style deals. They'd bring the plates of catfish out with hush puppies and fries and something called tomato relish. It was really terrible. One time I spilled some of that on a lady's head. It was awful. <laughs> it's one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. They overfilled the bowl, you know. You're just kind of going across the top of her head and you just do that. And she starts screaming. It was bad. We had these guys that were in the kitchen. Waiters and cooks never got along because the waiter's on the front line. The cook's in no hurry, right? And so you're always kind of, get. I need that food. And so, But these guys were Iranians. Back in those days, this is before the Ayatollah Khomeini, this is before the Shah got deposed. And so there was a lot of foreign exchange students coming out of Iran. And, you know, they, they brought their own culture. They brought their own religion. And they tended to cluster in groups and speak their own language. All the things that Americans do when we go international. But when they came here, Americans kind of resented that, and they didn't like that. And, we, you know, it was like they were different and all this, and, and people weren't very kind to them. And so these cooks, you got the double problem of the waiter cook, and then you got these uh, foreign exchange students. And, and I was freshly minted Christian, and so I'm like, I'm going to reach these guys. And so I decide that I'm going to be super, go out of my way to be gracious and kind and all this other stuff to them, and polite and everything. And I would give them respect, learn about them, listen to their stories, all those things that I ought to do with everybody, except I was just trying to be a better witness, which is sad. But... uh one day, one of them came up to me and he said, why are you so different? And I said, uh, what do you mean? He goes, well, you treat us different. You're respectful. You're kind. You're all these other things. And uh, so I told them about Jesus. They didn't get saved, but I think I might have planted some seeds. And, and then I realized, had that guy not asked me that question, I would have never given the witness. And he would have never known. He just thought of me as a good guy. It's not enough just to live it. You got to say it. You got to speak it. You got to cry it out and tell it. And then you honor God in your witness. The message can't be about you. John made sure his message honored Jesus. Look at verse 15. He testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. There's so much humility here. Later on, he would say, he must increase, I must decrease. Now, now John had a big following, and it could have been a temptation for him to want to take glory upon himself, which only belonged to Jesus, but he didn't do that. And, and there's something here that we need to hear. Your redemption story is your experience with God, but Jesus has to be the hero of that story, not you. Look at verse 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And I mentioned this last time. That word true is probably not the best translation of that because that word really means real. There was the real light, the real as, real as opposed to false light. It's not true as opposed to wrong. It's real as opposed to false. It's the difference between the sun and the moon, you know. The sun is the real light. It is producing light, whereas the moon is only reflected light. In fact, if you didn't have the sun, you wouldn't be able to see the moon. Well, the same is true of us. Jesus is the real light. The best we can ever do is just to reflect it, which means it's not about you. And there's something that we need to remember when we give our witness. It's not about you. And so let me say this. If your witness gives more credence to the sin of your former life, or if your witness gives more credit for your transformation to you than to Jesus, then rewrite your witness. The message can't be about you. Verse 16, for, in, for of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. Isn't that grace piled up on grace? 
just layer upon layer of grace. And some of us needed more than others. You know, Sam Houston, the old great Texas general and first president of the great Republic of Texas, late in life married a Baptist girl and got saved. And as he was getting baptized, he said, if baptism washes away your sin, then I feel for all of the fish that are downstream. Because he lived a hard, rough life. And some people need grace upon grace upon grace. But the point is, you couldn't have done it without that. Look, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus. Grace originated in Christ. You can't produce, you can't produce it. And your story is powerless without it. And then the next thing is when we witness, we reveal Jesus. He says in verse uh, 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only way you're going to see God is through what he chooses to reveal. And Jesus revealed the Father, the only begotten, and that's a beautiful word, uniquely born, the only begotten, monogenes, God, a God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained it or revealed it. And just as Jesus, the word of God, reveals the nature of God, we, through our testimony, become the Word of God to reveal the nature of Christ. And so Jesus witnessed the Father. We share our story. We witness to Jesus. And let me just finish with this, okay? Your witness, your life message is not always a redemption story. Now, that's the most powerful part of it. And when I say redemption, I guess it is all redemption. It's all redemptive. It's not just a salvation story. You see, God is weaving in your life a story of His grace, and our calling is not just to make converts. What does the Great Commission say? Go therefore and make converts of all nations. Is that what it says? What does it say? Go and make what? Disciples. And a disciple is a fully mature follower of Jesus Christ. And so it's not just about giving my testimony so that you'll come to Jesus. That's, that's a powerful part of it. But it's living my life testimony so that the things that God has poured into me, I pour into you and my story becomes your blessing and you grow as a result of it. You grow up in all things related to God. Let me show you how it works. I got a guy in our church whose wife died of ovarian cancer over a two or three year period. And they did the whole MD Anderson thing. And uh, at first she overcame it. She was in remission and then it came back. And so they did all that. And I walked with him through it and watched the whole grieving process. And man, he just, he just processed grief the way it should be done. And today he teaches a grief share class here at the church. His story poured into someone else. We have another lady in our church whose son, whose grown son, 60 years old, was just diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And she's like, do we go to NB Anderson? How do we do it? What do we do? How? So I, I called my friend who had gone through that, and I said, can you contact her and talk to her about it? And his life story became the thing that's now walking with her through her story. You see how it works? We have a lady in our church named Paula whose husband died uh, a year or so ago. And uh, she said, you know, it was, it was great in the early days, you know, all the care and comfort. And I'm not talking about the grief, the grief process, but, you know, all the, when, Baptists, when Baptists care about you, they start cooking, right? They just start cooking. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to cook something. I mean, we're all opposed to drunkenness, but we're okay with gluttony. 
that's just the way we are. I'm down with that. And so we're going we're gonna to cook for you. And they bring her more food than she'll ever eat in a lifetime. And all of that was good and helpful and all the prayers and all that stuff. She said, but my problem was I didn't know the first thing to do about paying the bills or talking to a lawyer or dealing with a will or dealing with Social Security or any of that stuff. And so in the process of me having to work through all of that, I realized that there's a lot of widows who don't have that. And so you know what she's done? She started a ministry for, for new widows who are going through the process just to help them walk through the practicality of it. Not through the grief share kind of thing, but just through the practicality of what steps do you take uh, in order to get your life in some ways pieced back together so you can even begin to process your own grief. Her life story being poured into others in, in discipling people. You know, when I first got married, I didn't know the first thing about being a husband or a father. I didn't know the first thing about it. It never even occurred to me to wonder. I just thought that life would go on the way it always had gone on. And I've got this woman in my life now, and she's very different from what I expected in terms of her being exactly like me, and she had opinions. And I had to process that. So, Because, I mean, I had, a, I had a good dad, but he wasn't a spiritual guy, and he didn't teach me how to be a spiritual husband or a spiritual father. So I had to seek out. And I had all these older guys who were my friends. And I was like, what do you do, you know, when your wife's mad at you? How do you respond to that? You know, and uh, they would give me advice. Some of it was good. Some of it wasn't. But, you know, they were pouring their life story. I remember Harold Locke one time. He said, I can tell three days in advance when Betty's going to be mad. I said, what do you do? And he goes, I burn rubber. <laughs> I'm not even sure what that means. But it was helpful. At the time, your story is so important. And there are people, there are individual people who need to hear your story. So let me say two things and I'm done. First of all, do you know that you have a story? Have you experienced Jesus Christ? Do you know that God is at work in your life? If you haven't done that, then somebody else's redemption story needs to become your redemption story, and you start with Jesus. But if God has birthed new life in you through Christ, and that light is now in you, are you nurturing that light and allowing God to create that story in you? When you go through things, He's teaching you. When you experience Question marks, other people are pouring into you teaching. And from that, God forming that life message to help you not only to share your redemption story, but to share the story of walking with Jesus in full maturity in Christ. Are you willing to do that? Right now, I'm going to ask you, are you willing to do that? To allow Christ to use you to build up Jesus in other people so that you become, here's the word, a witness. As Jesus witnessed the Father, you witnessed the Son. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for John 1. Thank you for the calling you've put over our lives. Thank you for what you want to do to heal people right now. I pray for those that need a story. And they may be here because somebody shared their redemption story with them. And they're ready and God, your Holy Spirit speaking into their lives says, today's the day. Give your life to Jesus right now in this moment. And I thank you for salvation that comes by that. We don't know all the right words to say. We just say, God, best I know how I cry out to you. But Father, help us also, those of us who walk in the life, 
to allow you to build that message in us. And Father, we promise you, we're gonna share our story. We're gonna be your witness. And we're gonna help someone to discover who Jesus is and how to grow in him. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.